Hello, everybody. My name is Jessica Kale, and you are listening to Dirty Sexy History. Guys, this is already episode 13. I thought about skipping it and going straight to 14, like some buildings do, with 13 being associated with bad luck and all that. What do you do? Do you record a bland topic and hope the relative safety of it cancels out any bad vibes that might come your way? Oh, no. (laughs) This week, I have not one but two dirty, sexy subjects and one absolutely massive content warning. First up, I'm going to talk about the 18th and 19th centuries fascination with autoerotic asphyxiation. For those of you not in the know, this is also called breath play or just choking in a consensual sexual context. And now for that disclaimer. Guys, don't try this at home. I'm completely serious, and this is completely dangerous, as I'll cover in the first half. After that, we're going back to Imperial Russia to talk about Rasputin's views on sex. Somehow, this is still a contentious subject. Every time I suggest that he was misunderstood, and believe me, I suggest this a lot in no uncertain terms, people are only too happy to argue with me based on a cartoon they saw 20 years ago. Look, when you get a picture of someone in your head, it's hard to shake, and I get that. But I've got the microphone today, and I'm going to show you a side of Rasputin that I can almost guarantee that you've never seen before. So sit back, make sure those airways are clear, and let's start off with an 18th century murder trial. When Franisek Kosvara died in September of 1791, he was an accomplished man of only 41. A notable Czech composer, famous for his sonata, The Battle of Prague, he was working in London as a multi-instrumentalist for the King's Theatre Orchestra. Despite his many successes in life, today he is better known for the manner of his death. Standing trial for murder at the Old Bailey, Susanna Hill explained what had happened. Hill was a sex worker, and Kotsvara was a client. On the 2nd of September, they had dinner and drinks together. Then she took him back to her room where, quote, a number of most indecent acts took place. So far, so normal, but Kotsvara had a special request. He wanted Hill to hang him. Claiming it would add to his pleasure, he asked to be hanged for five minutes, then released. He gave her money and sent her out to get some rope, and she came back with two thin cords, placing them around his neck at his request. He hanged himself off of her door, but when she cut him down after five minutes, as he had told her to do, Kotsvara collapsed and died. Although the jury returned a verdict of willful murder with the intention of discouraging other young women from attempting the practice, the judge refused to make an example of Hill for her part in the tragic accident. He ultimately ruled Kutzvara's death manslaughter, and Hill was free to go. Due to the sensitive nature of the case, the judge ordered all of its documents destroyed to protect the public. That went about as well as you'd expect. Despite the judge's best efforts to bury it with the late composer, the story got out. Hill's full testimony was printed in the pamphlet Modern Propensities, which was not unlike a tell-all gossip magazine today. Bonton magazine took it further, detailing the Kutsvara case and discussing the appeal of strangulation. It would have been on people's minds at the time. 
1791, the same year that Kutzvara died, the Marquis de Sade had also published Justine, which included a scene depicting erotic asphyxiation. Kutzvara was not the first to experiment with asphyxiation in Britain, and he certainly wasn't the last. Erotic asphyxiation, or autoerotic if practiced alone, had been used in several cultures around the world as a spiritual as well as a sexual practice. In England, it was recommended as a cure for erectile dysfunction from the early 17th century on. Public hangings were routine and well-attended, with crowds of sometimes thousands of people watching the condemned slowly strangle to death over a period of several minutes. That the men often became erect or even ejaculated before death would not have been missed. This effect was caused by damage to the spinal cord or brain rather than actual sexual pleasure, but many were still curious enough to try it. Two years after Kutzvara's death, Bonton reported that the well-known dangers of erotic asphyxiation had not dissuaded people from attempting it. They detailed the experience of a gentleman from Bristol with erectile dysfunction, which they referred to rather euphemistically as requiring assistance in the secret affairs of Venus. That sounds a little bit better, but it's a bit more of a mouthful, isn't it? Anyway, during a visit to London, the gentleman repeated Kutzvara's experience with another sex worker on Charlotte Street. Well aware of the case, the young woman only reluctantly agreed, and she cut him down the moment he started to have alarming symptoms, well within the first minute of suspension. Because of her quick thinking, the gentleman survived and went on to write favorably of the experiment. Not everyone was so lucky, however. Cutting off oxygen or blood flow to the brain is incredibly dangerous, and it can result in cardiac arrest, sudden loss of consciousness, suffocation, and brain damage. Even with partners or safety measures in place, death can occur so quickly that there is still no way to do it safely. Because of its taboo nature, accidental deaths due to erotic asphyxiation have always been underreported or misrepresented as suicide, so outside of a few high-profile cases, it is impossible to know how many people have actually died in this way. Statistics have never been recorded in Britain, but a recent study estimated that as many as a thousand deaths occur in the United States every year from autoerotic asphyxiation. Despite these serious and well-publicized dangers, interest in erotic asphyxiation endured throughout the 19th century in no small part due to its effects on the mind. Kutzvara did it for the dream state it induced. In addition to heightened physical sensations, depriving the brain of oxygen could produce a hallucinogenic effect that, as modern propensities put it, would help people to ascend to the upper sphere of conjunctive transports. The aim was not to orgasm, well, it was that, but it was also to straddle the boundary between life and death to see what was on the other side. As dangerous as it was, the high produced by the combination of hypoxia and orgasm could become addictive, so demand for it continued. Throughout the 19th century, a number of hanged men's clubs opened for the purpose in London, staffed with sex workers who claimed to be able to do it safely every time. 
This was an impossible guarantee, and medical professionals continued to make the risks known to the public. With these warnings, its use as a cure for impotence was eclipsed by its ability to help one transcend physical reality into a euphoric dream state. It was a specific, dangerous high, not unlike opium or laudanum, but with the added promise of orgasm as well. For some, interest in it might not have been despite its close association with death, but because of it. The dead or dying were often fetishized, as we covered last week in episode 12, and a lot of popular literature depicted death in a romantic light. As interest in spiritualism and seances took off, asphyxiation may have felt like the next logical step for some, a way to not only contact the other side, but a way to see it for oneself. But asphyxiation wasn't the only way to have a transcendent sexual experience. After this gratuitous musical interlude, we're going to go back to Imperial Russia for another way to see God in the bedroom. Give it up for the man, the myth, the dick in the jar, Rasputin. Welcome back. Being a fan of both history and music, I've often considered the hypothesis presented by the great scholar Boney M. back in 1978. Was Rasputin really Russia's greatest love machine? I've wondered about this for years. Over time, Rasputin's life has become more legend than fact, thanks to a campaign of propaganda so scathing that most people today have not only heard of him, but still associate him with supreme evil. They say that he was a con artist, a lecher, a devil. That cartoon made him green, for God's sake, so you know he must have been bad. Even now, his portrayal by his critics is taken at face value and typically viewed through the lens of our own morality. Much has been made of Rasputin's life, death, and legacy, and I'm not going to rehash that for you today. Today, we're going to talk about one side of his life that is usually overlooked. That is, his understanding of love, sex, religion, and how he tied all of that together. Being a priest, many people see his affairs as evidence that he was a failure at best, or at worst, a predator. The idea that sex and religion don't go together, however, is hardly universal, and ideas about this depend entirely on your interpretation of your faith. Rasputin's views, like the man himself, are rather more complicated than you might expect. He was a monk with deeply held religious beliefs that developed out of Orthodox tradition, as well as his experience with the Kalisti sect. Now, the Kalisti sect was an interesting group that split off from the Russian Orthodox Church sometime in the 17th century. Among other things, they believed that true joy could only be achieved through forgiveness, and therefore the surest way to God is to sin for the express purpose of being forgiven. So how did they do this? Ritual orgies, obviously. Now, Rasputin was not a member of this sect, but he had spent some time with them before arriving in St. Petersburg, and this idea of sacred sin stuck with him for the rest of his life. During his lifetime, Rasputin was hated, feared, and revered in equal measure. 
In the last days of Imperial Russia, he was thought to have too much influence over the royal family and the government. He was a peasant with the ear of the Tsar, an untrustworthy figure, and a convenient scapegoat for the political unrest that plagued the empire. Because he was seen as potentially very dangerous, a campaign of misinformation and unflattering political cartoons was launched against him, and it was so effective that most people still believe it today. Keep in mind that sources from this period are unreliable, to say the least. Due in no small part to political upheaval and the subsequent revolution, existing records are full of omissions, contradictory accounts, and outright lies. Between this and the popular rumors about him, it's still difficult to get a good read on Rasputin. He was said to be an insatiable lecher, a filthy peasant who was at once so dumb he was barely coherent, but at the same time intelligent and calculating enough to single-handedly overthrow the monarchy. They said he was hideous, stinking, and had food perpetually stuck in his beard. Women loved him, no one could deny that, but it was probably because he hypnotized them. Yeah, it was, it was that magic, right? Look, that's a lot, but the more you think about it, the less it makes sense. It's difficult to imagine somebody being both a genius and a complete idiot, repellent and irresistible. This picture of him begins to fall apart with the account of his contemporary, Filipov. Desperate to understand why Rasputin was so attractive to women, he checked him out in the public bath. He wrote... His body was exceptionally firm, not flabby, and ruddy and well-proportioned without the paunch and flaccid muscles usual at that age, and without the darkening of the pigment of the sexual organs, which at a certain age tend to have a dark or brown hue. Weird fixation with skin tone aside, Filipov reported nothing unusual about Rasputin's physical appearance, and he further described him as an exceptionally clean man who bathed and changed his clothes frequently, and he said that he never smelled bad. For a man in his early 40s, Rasputin was in good shape. He was clean, exceptionally firm, and he had abs. It's also worth noting that he was 6'4", and had pale blue eyes so hypnotic that they were described as phosphorescent. They were beautiful and maniacal. Okay, all these years later, we begin to understand what Filipov missed. Rasputin was hot. I know, I know, look, I can hear you laughing from here, but bear with me, okay? <laughs> Great body, ridiculous beard, eyes that are somehow both crazy and crazy beautiful, and the supernatural ability to drop panties at 50 paces? He was legit the Tom Hardy of Imperial Russia. But Rasputin was not as indiscriminately lustful as he was made out to be. His voracious sexual appetite plagued him, and he made it his mission not only to conquer it, but to use his experience to help others do the same. Many women acquainted with him reported that in spite of their frequent advances, he didn't often take the bait. During this same time, however, he was very fond of sex workers, but his behavior with them was not what the tabloids would lead us to believe. According to Peach, an ex-sex worker who, in the 1970s, still referred to him affectionately as Grishka, he was a little odd. 
According to Peach, he took her to the same cheap hotel where they all took her, and he ordered her to undress. He sat down across from her and sat and watched in silence. His face suddenly turned very, very pale, as if all the blood had left it. She even got scared. Then he gave her the money and left. On his way out, he said, Your kidneys are bad. And it turns out he was right. Years later, Peach had to have a kidney removed. On another occasion, he took her to the same hotel and he laid down in bed with her, but he didn't touch her once. Why not? It was an exercise in restraint. Rasputin believed that the way to refine his nerves was by mastering his flesh, so he would put himself in situations of great temptation to actively improve his spirit by resisting. In his words, as recounted by Filipov, It is something women folk do not understand. The saints would undress harlots and look at them, and become more refined in their feelings, but would not allow any intimacy. The idea was that if one could refine their nerves and reach the highest platonic states, they could literally float or even walk on water through the heightened ability of their soul. That's not to say that he was exactly celibate. To understand Rasputin's view of sex, there are two key things that you have to understand. The idea that God is love and that love has nothing to do with marriage. Many of Rasputin's devotees were married women, but he never slept with them if they were truly in love with their husbands. The idea was that love itself is sacred, while marriage is a social construct based more on property than real spiritual connection. If one had a loveless marriage, it would not be a sin to find love outside of it. Rather, to him, the sin would be to remain faithful within it and to never experience real love, which was the surest way to God. None of his devotees, who we're reasonably certain did sleep with him, ever admitted to adultery. He advised them not to, not only for his own protection, but because he did not actually believe that it was adultery to have sex outside of a loveless marriage. As Edvard Radzinski explains, Love was the chief thing for him, love everywhere overflowing, the pagan love of nature, of trees, grass, and rivers. Only love was holy. And therefore, if a married woman loved her husband, she was, for Rasputin, untouchable. But whatever was not love was a lie. If a woman did not love her husband and remained in the marriage, she was sinful. Rasputin was against love's being subordinated to the laws of marriage. It was for him something terrible that came from the official church. Everything that was not true love was to him criminal and subject to change. But the relationship between sex and love was a little bit more complicated. Sex was still a sin, but the best way to be cleansed of it was to have it and thus be freed of the impulse. You know, do it once to get it out of your system. Because that works. <laughs> when it ultimately struck again, he was only too happy to take that sin upon himself. For the spiritual well-being of the women, of course. At one point, he even advised his coterie to visit him daily to be purged of any sinful impulses that might arise. 
This practice is part of why people of a more traditional religious persuasion dismiss him as evil. His understanding of the nature of God and the purpose of love and sex was different from that of mainstream Christianity, and they couldn't understand it. That is not to say that he exploited it for his own purposes. He genuinely believed that this was the surest path to God. Like the Callisti, he believed that true joy was obtained through forgiveness, so communion with God could be found on the other side of sin. It's worth noting that if we disassociate sex with sin in this case, it becomes something altogether more benign. If sex is not inherently sinful and is practiced as an expression of love and a communion with the divine, the only thing that you can reasonably object to in this instance is the women's marital status. So was Rasputin really Russia's greatest love machine? If we look at the love aspect outside of the euphemism here, you know what? Maybe he was. After all, love was central to his spiritual mission and his understanding of God. From what remains of his personal life, remembered conversations, and the evident swarms of female devotees, we can draw our own conclusions. It's safe to say that he was not as promiscuous as he was made out to be, and sex for him and with him was more than an expulsion of sinful impulse. It was a spiritual experience. What an enlightening episode. Do you feel enlightened? I know I do. This week, I'd like to give a shout out to my high school friend, Katie, who gave me the most ruling nickname a 16-year-old girl could ever hope for. That's right, friends. My nickname back in high school was actually Rasputin. It was because my uh, real <coughs> last name uh, starts with an R, is hard to spell, and sounds a little bit like Rasputin if you mumble, and not because I was destined to become the charismatic head of a spiritualist sex cult. You know probably. So thanks, Katie, and thank you also to our fabulous patrons on Patreon. Dirty Sexy History is brought to you by the glorious Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Elizabeth Davis, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Janine Meberg, and Jessica Miller. Thank you, guys. If you would like to support the show, please check us out on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. Please rate, review, and subscribe because it really helps us out. As an independent podcast, we are totally reliant on word of mouth to get us to as many like-minded history friends as possible, and you all have been doing a fantastic job of that. So thank you all so very much, and please keep up the good work. As always, you can find us through our website at DirtySexyHistory.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we will post the photos for this week's show. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast and this episode was written, produced, researched, and all that good stuff by me, Jessica Kale, and edited by the very helpful and extremely patient, John Jenkins. My sources today include Ewan Block, Sex Life in England, Past and Present. William B. Ober, The Sticky End of Franisac Kotswara, Composer of the Battle of Prague, in the American Journal of Forensic Medicine and Pathology, June 1984. Edvard Radzinski, The Rasputin File. Stephen Seidel, 
Accidental Autoerotic Death, a review on the Lethal Paraphiliac Syndrome, Forensic Pathology Reviews, Volume 1. Clayton Carlton Tarr, Pleasurable Suspension, Erotic Asphyxiation in the 19th Century, 19th Century Context, 2016. And Boney M. Rasputin on Night Flight to Venus, 1978. Okay, I know this isn't exactly a source, but it slaps, so you've got to look it up on YouTube immediately. You can thank me later. On that note, see you next week.